Welcome to Stoveside Stories. The chef is ready for your kitchen tour. Please come this way. Chef Suzette, thanks for joining us again with the call. Let's start with you telling us about a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got here. Um, you know, I'm an older chef, obviously, so it's a long story, but basically... I didn't realize at the time I was a pioneer in the industry, there was not a lot of women outside of maybe the pantry or the cold side. So I worked my way around through different vacations, locations, different jobs, different positions, trying to work my way up. Um, I hit some stumbling blocks and I also hit some great moments um, unexpectedly uh, working for United Airlines and the Italian chef Carmine Mafai uh, was a sous chef position that was very pivotal. They spent a lot of uh, time and effort in training me and management. I got to see things in a 24 hour kitchen. Um, I moved from there and went to a hotel. I'd done a lot of actually working in hotels, um, hit it off with a chef there as well. And, and uh, really, uh, and actually that was before United, but uh, he really let me work all over the, the property in many different capacities. And so I really got to reinforce what my culinary school had you know, brought to my fundamentals. And um, I did an apprenticeship, which was unheard of back in the day. That's three years indentured as an apprentice. Um, I eventually ended up at a hotel in San Francisco where I was the executive chef. There was only one other female chef, executive chef I know of at that time at another hotel. So it was very uncommon to see women in those positions. Um, and I left with the gentleman that hired me, Giancarlo Paterlini, my um, partner of today, at that time in 1989 to open Ocarello. So Ocarello will be 32 in July. So um, I've gotten to cook on cruise ships. I've been able to do lots of offsite catering. I worked for an airline. Um, I did a lot of uncommon things. Uh, did catering on my own as a college student that kind of launched me. Um, did, did many things, many, many things. Nice. And you were saying there was some sort of challenges you faced, I guess, throughout your career. Is there anything that particularly sticks out in your mind? Well, that's a big topic. That, that could consume the article as a whole. Um, it's, it's really hard a lot of times when you have lived through something um, to go back and articulate it for someone else. And, you know, there was the Me Too movement. And I, as much as I lived through a lot of atrocities, I didn't really want to relive them. I didn't want to bring them back up. I felt like it was water under the bridge and they all serve a purpose. I mean, I am not in fear of adversity. Adversity is something that I think our society at times wants to eliminate. Um, but I came up, you know, when public schools weren't necessarily fair, when everything wasn't perfect, when, you know, um, it was less than padded, it was the real deal. And I think that we as Americans have grit, you know, we are trained to, or at least taught to um, apply ourselves. And so I, I did the best I could with what I had, just applied myself in many different ways. Um, and in my case, it was either outwork or outthink or just survive in an environment where I wasn't supposed to. And, and then it comes to thrive. When you do really well, um, you get a little more you know, recognition. I didn't do it for that reason. I didn't even know if I could be a chef back in the day. I didn't know if I would be afforded the opportunity, if I had the fortitude to go through the quagmire stuff that I went through. So I, um, I'm very grateful to be where I am today. And I, I don't take it for granted. And I'd like to think that I can provide a um, pathway for others to follow. It's very important to me to 
have contributed to the industry that's been my livelihood. I, I love what we do. I love this industry. I love cooking. I'm in my kitchen every night. Um, I'm certainly not 29 anymore. Um, so it's, uh, it's a challenge. And even though your, your brain thinks you're 29, sometimes your body says, uh, no, you're not. So um, I think it's more important to not dwell on the things that held me back, but is to dwell on the things that propelled me forward. Um, it's more important to surmount and survive and move on and help others um, do the same thing. If you can, if you can, that's what our goal is, right? Mm -hmm. I love that you're saying that you, know, you want to look forward instead of backwards and see what you can contribute and help make yourself and others better that way. I think history is important so we don't repeat errors no matter what topic you choose. You know, history is important to recognize, um, but certainly it is to give you a foundation so that you can learn from all those things that happened before you and apply yourself in perhaps even a different way or a broader scope of things. Right. Now, you know, going back, I guess, uh, when you're growing up, uh, obviously you mentioned you have a French background and, you know, your French grandmother taught you how to grow best produces and the art of canning and preserving different produce. You know, that's a little, it's a little romantic to say it quite like that, but you remember for a lot of immigrants, necessity was the propelling factor. And my grandmother came in 1906 and went through Ellis Island, New York and trans traveled down to New Orleans. Um, I'm not sure what her experiences were, but as a French non-English speaking immigrant, it wasn't a pretty time necessarily to be an immigrant. My mom was a first generation born here in San Francisco in 1919. And, you know, you didn't want to be from another country. You wanted to be American. So she really fought speaking a second language. She fought all the traditions. She fought all of the foods. She fought everything she knew because it wasn't who she was and where she was. And there was no tolerance for that at that time. So it transferred down to us and some sort of this, you know, contradiction of being proud of your heritage, but not acknowledging it fully because you wanted to be American. My grandmother always spoke of La Belle France, but she never went back. She was proud to be an American. She came, learned English. She had no more than a second grade education, taught herself English, took her citizenship tests, passed everything. She was proud to be an American. She wouldn't take a pension when my grandpa passed away. She wouldn't take any type of government assistance. She was proud. This, this country had given her something and she wanted to repay. And, and that was a mentality that exuded, you know, through Italians, Irish, German, not, not exclusive to our family. So when she was growing vegetables, that's where she came from. She grew great vegetables and we ate really well. And I was a recipient of all that. And I didn't realize that not everybody else knew that or, or had that foundation. We always thought of fresh herbs as just go outside the kitchen door and pick some or tomatoes were in the backyard or, you know, we can some apricots in the summertime. So let's eat those, you know, in November. Um, it was a mentality that I just didn't understand, um, didn't exist for everybody. So it was a revelation when I would bring friends home from school at lunchtime and my mom had a pot of soup on the stove or she'd make French fries from scratch or, you know, we just ate really well for not a lot of money. Um, it was a mentality. It was a philosophy. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the the just the way that you grew up with, with the tradition that brought you along. Right. And the funny part was the juxtaposition is because my mom was the new American, they wouldn't teach her to cook. Um, so she had to develop and find that all on her own because they didn't want her to repeat what her family had come from. They wanted the 
future. They wanted education. They wanted something better, right? That's what immigrants came here for. And so it was very odd that my mom really kind of was stuck in that craw between those two existences. Um, and she turned out to be a really good cook and she was a good cook and she was a very adventurous cook. She was always trying new things. So I learned that love of um, try something new. Let's make, you know, pate for the New Year's Eve party. You know, we'd never made that before or, or you know, let's just try something different. And, um, you know, that's the six, 70s and 80s. And by the time I was cooking, it was um, an interesting way to just segue into, I, I didn't think I was going to be a chef. I, I was going to school for oceanography, social psychology. I was in all the arts. I was in all these different things, but I got a job in a cafeteria and I was happy as a clam. And these, I mean, imagine these little ladies in white dresses with white hosiery and white shoes and white hairnets. And they're like, Suzette, you should consider this. I'm like, consider what? And they're like, well, being a cook. And I'm like, no way. Yeah. And it, it wasn't until the gentleman who was the manager of the facility said, Suzette, you really ought to consider doing this as a career. And I laughed and I said, women don't do this. And he said, no, but you should. And that was the first pivotal point that made me stop and think that maybe I had a chance. Maybe there was a glimmer of hope. Maybe this was something I could pursue because your parents always tell you, find your passion, find, find what you like, find what you, you know, really floats your boat. Right. Um, and I was a good student and, and um, I had gone from one community college told my mom at the end of that college that I wanted to go to food. And she said, no, 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 you, you finish what you started here. So I had my AA degree. And then I went off to a community college that had a food tech program and did two more years there to get an AS degree. Um, and also while I was there, I fell in love with cooking. I thought I was going to be a restaurant manager. I didn't think I was going to be a chef. And so um, the chefs there were old world. There was one Jewish gentleman who was really my mentor. There was another German gentleman and they fought cat and dog it was hysterical. Um, but they were both so good in their own right. One was very pragmatic. One was intellectual. Um, one took me through the rigors of the kitchen and was just terribly hard, which was wonderful. And the other one helped me to develop the side of my brain that said, can you think about this from, you know, another perspective? Is there a way to be inclusionary? Is there a way to be encompassing? Is there a way to broaden your respect? So I was getting management and philosophical training while I was getting practical, you know, go clean the walk-in training. So it was, it was an interesting dichotomy, but that's kind of been the hallmark, I think, of my career is this odd dichotomy as you flow and ebb between. The, the point is to pick up as you go. The point is to really gather all those points and put it together in a package so that you can become a chef. Today's chef can't just cook. Today's chef really has to be aware of issues that are on the table and aware of different people, different styles, communication, sustainability, um, advocacy, um, just a bazillion other things. And you better hope you can make good food as well. Um, so it's, it's a much bigger picture now. And I think it's harder for people sometimes to wrap their head around. They get into a cooking show and they see the romance and they see you know, all of the glamor. But honestly, it isn't like that on a day-to-day -day basis. That's not a true picture of what a diet in the wool to the core chef is doing. Um, you know, I recently filmed a TV series with Gordon Ramsay, and it was wonderful to have a glimpse into that world. And, you know, for whatever you think about him or any other TV personality, they did come from something. They, they have to come from somewhere. There has to be s substance there, or you can't portray that on a TV screen. Some people are more sensational, some people are more charismatic, but they have to have that element, that core of a love of food and a love of a kitchen and a love of our industry, or you, you can't begin to portray it.
it's very, I thought it was very interesting. Right. Let's see in a sort of different perspective when you work with someone in a, in a similar situation as you, but with a different way of. When I, when I think of analogies, I think of chefs, emergency room doctors, firemen, people who rush in and try and take care of a situation and then think about it later. They just, I mean, I feel like I've had chaos training, <laughs> chaos training, which prepares you for motherhood. I've done that too. Um, it's just interesting. It, it, everything has a good and a bad. There, there's no way to get it one without the other. And so it's just how you manage it, how you manage that whole package. Right. I was reading some of your interviews before and what you seem to really value is to give an education to the people that work with your restaurant. Right. One. Right. So, you know, in that, I have a couple of questions. So first is, what's the most important thing for a chef to learn, as you, you were saying? You know, what's the most important thing to develop? Well, these are, you know, rather profound questions. And when you think about it, the first thing that comes to mind is food. The first thing that comes to my mind is survival and how well you survive, who you take with you, how you are, your culinary presence. Um, I try to grow people who are not assholes or jerks because we have plenty of those. So I try to tailor my education for each individual person to their weaknesses and their strengths. Sometimes we have a person who's very adept, but is callous and just can trash a whole crew with being oblivious. Then you have people who are extremely, you know, intellectually in the picture, but aren't physically able to do what they think they should be able to do or what I think they should be able to do. So you have stumbling blocks. People are not perfect. They come as a package. And you either take it or you don't. So once you take the package, I'm invested. So I try to really invest myself in giving them the tools, whether it's personal, philosophical, you know, um, actual technique, whether it's exposure, whether it's forcing them to do things they've avoided. Um, I'm like, I'm like your worst nightmare of your mom on steroids because I will nag and then I will draw a line, say, here's where I stop nagging, and here's the penalty phase, and here's where you perform. And if you don't, here's what's going to happen. Okay, so um, it, it's, it's very, I think, rewarding, but it's a, it's a very big, um, it's not a burden. I don't think it's a burden. I think it's, it's an um, obligation. It's, it's a, something that I see as necessary for this industry. I think it's what's the missing piece when we talk about mental health. It's the missing piece when we talk about, you know, um, equality or equality for all genders, races, age groups, whatever. It is, it's all of today's hot topics rolled up into what's, you know, behind the line in my kitchen. Everybody here pay, plays a very key role. It's like how you treat your dishwasher with respect. Why shouldn't you? That guy is integral to the success of this business. It's how you treat your front of the house with respect. They, they are your face in the dining room. It's how you treat your cooks on the line. It's how you treat your vendors when they walk in the door. It's how you, you know, treat your clientele when they ask you, you know, something that you think is basic or they should understand they don't so you have to educate you have to educate on absolutely every level and have compassion and empathy and understanding for those that just don't know haven't been there haven't seen want to know whatever the case may be and, and it's really you know you're like a coach you're like a coach of a of a team and you're really in there trying to pull the best out of absolutely everybody at the same time while you're making food that's amazing. Like I like the the way you use the analogy of the team. I'm a huge basketball fan, and you know that's sort of the the John Wooden school of you know making sure everyone's taken care of. Well, think of any one star player in our area. I think of Steph Curry, right? 
where would he be without the rest of his team? Where would he be without Draymond Green? Where, where would those guys be without everybody? Nowhere. They possibly do what they do. Can't do it either without my crew. There's no way. Right. And there's responsibility on both ways, both on yourself and the person that's trying to learn from you as well. Well, and the biggest thing is being able to admit you've made a mistake when you're the leader, right? When do leaders say, I'm sorry? Virtually never. When do leaders say that was my fault? You know, virtually never. So I've tried to train everyone that it's okay to say, I made a mistake. I didn't do this right. Please forgive me. I need to fix this. And I need you to help me. I think that's great strength. I think that's great, you know, integrity. I think that's honesty. And those are the things that I value. If I can, you know, instill that in somebody else, you know, to take a hit for the team. If you get accused of doing something and it's not your fault, you just say, in that case, yes, chef. And later, if it's really bad, you can say, you know, that really wasn't me. Chances are that I know it wasn't you, but I was either letting everybody know or you were just the embodiment of what we need to work towards. So it's, it's one of those where sometimes it's not fair. Life is not fair. You know, kitchens aren't perfect, um, but we try not to employ the three things that I consider to be the detriment. That's fear, intimidation, and ridicule. If you watch the Midian, the, sorry, the Michelin video, you'll see me expound on that. But I think that um, we try very hard to bring the best out of everybody. Yeah, I remember seeing a video saying that you don't, as you found out that it's actually useful, those three things, but you know, you try not to do that. So that's something that I think it's actually even more, more honorable that way because you, you know that it works, but you chose not to do it that way. It's far more difficult, mind you. It's far more difficult because all of a sudden you're taking this very autocratic role and making it democratic. So everyone thinks they have a voice. They think they have a, to be heard. And so in order to encompass everybody, and at some point you have to draw a line and say, I'm sorry, I know you guys disagree, but this is what we're going to do. And this is why, and I hope you can get on board. And so it does take the leadership, right? But people will tend to follow you if they believe in what you believe. I want things to work well when I'm not even in the building. I mean, it's not about that ego. I don't have that ego. I don't believe in that ego. I don't like that ego because I think it, it breeds itself into people thinking they're better than the next guy. And I don't like that either. Right. And so an extension to my question earlier would be, uh, and your response would be, and how did you find out which individual needs what kind of education? What do, you, what do they need to learn to either, you know, take the next step in their career or in general improve as a person? Well, it takes a great deal of paying attention. It takes a great deal of being present. You have to listen. You have to look. You have to pay attention to what situations they falter in so that you can offer up another way or offer up some suggestions, advice, encouragement, you know, and or admonishment. If, if it's really something they're doing that's really thwarting the rest of the team or thwarting the efforts of um, what you're trying to do as a whole. And it's really hard to not call somebody out in the moment, but you have to think about, you know, what's the old saying? Um, you pick your battles to win your wars. So sometimes you limp along with certain things until you can identify and then you try to fix it. And you say, look, we tried this before. It's not working for us. We're going to try something else now. Um, and I really need you to X, Y, Z. And I think if you give people the information and you can point things out to them, they're fairly responsible. They, they themselves might be struggling with how to do it. How do I achieve this? You know, and it's not because they don't want to. It's because they don't see how. They don't know how to get to that point. And so it's really important that you either reframe it, re-explain it, uh, redesign it, or, or look at your own. Like if you ask somebody to do too much and they can't do it and they're struggling and you're watching a clock, you realize I gave them too much to do. I got to shift this. I got to take something away, give it to the morning crew, 
give it to this other station. I got to find balance there. And isn't, isn't life about balance? It, it is, right? So, I mean, we're trying to teach this to a whole nother younger generation of how to move forward with great acumen and skill, patience, kindness, balance, and be professional, which is huge to me too, and represent. I, I mean, I, I need everyone to understand here. They're not just themselves anymore. When they leave here, they've got Acarello's name on them. So they are an emissary of, of us after 32 years of who we are, what we are, how we believe, how we think, the good food, the good service. I mean, I want them to step up. I want them to be the best they can be because that's certainly a compliment to me, but it isn't for me. It's for them. That's the difference. That's very useful. And that's kind of where I'm certainly in my career myself. I've run to situations where I have to you know, manage people or, or be managed by someone else. And, yeah. you know, having that sort of way to manage it in a, in a constructive manner, I think it's, it's very important. Yeah, it's hard. I'm, I'm struggling with that today. I have um, some thoughts about my own lack of conviction. Um, and it's a very hard topic to face if you're not convicted. And you can be wrongly convicted, but if you're not convicted, you don't move in the same manner. And I think sometimes silence can be misconstrued as compliance. And I'm not compliant. I'm simply watching and thinking and worrying about what I need to do to make a positive impact. And so sometimes I think um, there's differences often between the sexes, male and female. And I don't like to be stereotypical, but I've, I've noticed of my own experiences, I can only speak for myself, that um, I'm a methodical stop, think, watch, look, learn. And I don't jump in. And when I do jump in, I have to be convicted that I'm 100% correct or I won't, which is sometimes not good. You need to stop. You need to step in. You need to say whatever, wrong or right. And so there's this balance, again, between how much havoc do I want to wreak and for what gain? So it's the pick the battles to win the wars, but often it can be misconstrued. Yeah, it's when you're dealing with people, there's always challenges one way or another. You do something, you don't do something. Well, I don't like the word cocky, but I like the word strong. So, I mean, I like to think I'm quiet strength that I'm a force to be reckoned with because I'm deep, I'm solid, I'm substance. I'm hard to move. I'm a rock at times, all right? But I'm a rock you can roll down the hill if it needs to go there. It's, it's also this, I, I, I keep coming back to the balance because it's a benevolence, right? You can be an asshole, you can be a dictator, you can really tear up people and spit them out. But at the end of the day, what, what good have you done for yourself and others? What, I mean, what good have you done? Have you really achieved something? Because that, that's the measurement, right? If I die tomorrow, I'd like my epitaph to be something is a great, um, a great teacher and maybe a great chef. Because teaching is really, is really the culmination and the end product. It shows what you know. If you can teach somebody else, it shows what you know. It's the measurement vehicle, right? If you're a great mastermind and you can't share any of that, what what impact have you made? Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. Now, going back, I guess, uh, a little bit more on a personal level, I guess, you obviously lived your entire life in the San Francisco Bay Area. And a lot of changes has happened throughout the years, uh, you know, as you're growing up, as well as when you're as, as a chef. So, what have you seen in terms of the food and also the city itself uh, that, you know, sort of make you think a certain way or things that, you know, made you? Well, and part of, it's, part of it's more of a globalization. It's not even just San Francisco. It's what happens to cities. It's what happens to older cities. 
it's what happens when, you know, suburbia start to become more metropolitan, uh, when there's simply a higher population and there's a different population of different kinds of folks. I think it's very interesting if you're in Italy or you're in a country where there's a similar mentality. When you go to America, we are comprised of so many culturals, nationalities, everything else. And I think that in itself is the beauty of San Francisco. We've allowed everybody to be themselves um, and they don't always align. And so there, there's the good and the bad, right? So San Francisco was smaller and we were a tighter knit community. We've gotten larger. I think we've lost a hold on our community and culinary, especially. Um, the older generation maybe hasn't done as good a job as connecting with the younger generation. I wish I could bridge that a little bit better. Um, I would like to be more of a mentor and help them come up. They don't have to do it my way. They, they won't, they're gonna do it their own way. But there are little pearls of wisdoms that you can snatch from that past. Um, you know, living in the Bay Area, simply we were a little more free, I think, in the, in the global and, and in San Francisco, we're a little more constrained now. Um, a lot of light has been shed on my industry specifically from before the pandemic and after the pandemic. In my opinion, we were hanging on a precipice. We were at a cliff before the pandemic. The pandemic simply pushed us over. Now, the question is, how do we resurrect ourselves? Do we come back with bigger, better, more? Or do we flail ourselves open and be honest about what wasn't working? Uh, do we try to find some pathway through all of that and still provide a service and provide you know, our skills and provide things? Um, the industry, the restaurant industry is a very odd conundrum because you often can be serving people of affluence when you yourself are not and your expectations are that you are going to be on their par when you are I don't want to say subservient but you are certainly providing a service and it's very interesting for people many times to realize that people can't afford to live in San Francisco based on the wages that I, and I'm a double-hatted person I'm the chef and the owner so I wear both hats and those two guys don't see eye to eye. A lot of times you're dreaming about food and then you're looking at food costs. You're dreaming about the staff you need and looking at what it costs to have staff. You're looking at how you provide, you know, healthcare, mental health, if they need it, um, just time off if they need it, um, you know, a livable wage, you know, how, how do you provide everything? Because you're mom and pop in a way you, be, you become everything. I like to think that we have a really solid family here that we give a little bit more intrinsic value and not just monetary but we have changed so much since we reopened. Not only did we paint, clean, reformatted our menu, we changed our food, we changed the tipping pool, which is huge. I'm sure you're reading about this in San Francisco, especially. We have made it what we call all of the house. So logistically, yes, there are folks in the front and there are folks in the back, but we're trying to make them equitable. We're trying to make it so that it's not so uneven and that a cook feels their worth and that a, a server knows their worth as well. And so that they're not adversarial anymore, that they are team players, they are co-workers, that without either side, you, you can't function. And, and we need to realize and respect and honor both sides of the team. Um, and so we've tried to set that up and, and do it in a manner where by um, our guests still have a great experience. Because for us, it isn't just eating. For us, it's you come in, the warmth, the Italian hospitality, the sommeliers, the wine service, the pairing with the food, the chefs, the, the servers, the servers are knowledgeable and kind and we'll try to do anything to make you happy. Um, it's for a moment you're transported. So it's less than the airfare to go to Italy, but hopefully you feel that Italianness that that we have tried so hard to define and put in our mission statement and put in our everything that we do. But um, I think it's, it's really important to embody that. And it, it starts with everybody. It starts with hallways and our decor and staying, you know, as 
you know, just astute as you possibly can to the guest experience. It's really, really important. So I hope in your interview here, Carrie, that you can pick out the pearls because I, I throw so much at one time. I get a little nervous often how I'm recorded or perceived. So hopefully you can put that together in a better format for me. No, it's great. It's, it's actually not very common to really understand the entire, not just on a culinary standpoint, but just overall what you think of life and, and how things ought to be, so to speak, or things that you think that should, well, and, you know. San Francisco has suffered. We have gone through, you know, in my, my tenure here in, at Acarello, we've gone through an earthquake 90 days after we opened. Oh my God. Then we've gone through a massive recession when 275 restaurants closed in San Francisco. Then we went through the opening of Las Vegas, which became a food scene, not just a gambling scene. And there was this mass exodus of cooks because they could live in Nevada for a third of the price and make similar wages. So then there, you know, is um, the movements and, you know, embracing our communities here. And, you know, we've always been very pro the LGTB community. That's never been an issue. We've always been inclusionary. I'd like to think that I had all races and all sexes before anybody else was even talking about it. Um, and maybe I was a, an early misfit that finally is having my day, if you know what I mean, if that makes any sense at all. But um, I was told I was crazy back then, and now it's the norm. So maybe I was thinking ahead of myself or ahead of the time. I just try to do what's right. And that's very you know, definable differently by everybody, right? And when you're a business owner, there are many dictates that don't align with doing what's right. It's really awful, but it's true. And so you really have to bite the bullet sometimes and decide who you want to be, how you want to be. Um, and you don't do it because somebody's watching. You do it because you think it's right. And there's, there's a difference. And it's really hard because many times I've been chastised for not being more vocal or, or not taking a stand or not going out there and fighting. But you have to understand my idea of a restaurant was that this is respite. That's where the word comes from in French. The, the core word is respite. A restaurant was designed so that you got either out of your coach or your horse, horse and buggy days and you stopped for a moment you refreshed yourself, you either ate, you drank, used a restroom, you took an overnight, and then you got back on the road of life. And so the restaurant was to restore and repair. So I like to think that politics and other topics can be left at the door. And for two and a half hours or however long you're here, you get to break away, you get to relax, you get to drop everything and just enjoy the moment. When you step back outside the door, it's all waiting for you, it's all out there. But, but it was supposed to have been a safe haven, if you will, in a way. And it's really hard to keep it clear and free of everything, whether I'm taking a stand on vegetables, animals, you know, there's just so many topics, you know them. Mm -hmm. I find it very interesting. Obviously, when you're talking about the origins of restaurant, obviously, if you come up, compare it with the Michelin, you know, their, their whole, you know, worth a stop, that whole system, Basically, obviously, Michelin itself is a, is a Thai company. So that matches up perfectly with what you're saying. And the French company, too, originally. So I didn't draw that connection, but true. I just think back to San Francisco. Our city is at a tough spot right now. Um, you know, we have really wonderful weather. So we have an abundance of homeless folks. And how we deal with that expense and how we deal with those needs and how we deal with them as a whole is a big topic. You know, um, we've gotten slammed for all kinds of things as a city, and there's still a heart here. There's still a soul here. There's still a beauty. There is still, when you get to know the people, you see San Francisco. Um, when you get to see, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge and you're out on the coast, sure, we're in a beautiful place. But as a culinarian, when you get to see the farmers and their attention, the dairy workers, all the people who are 
giving us these great products, you realize there's this undercurrent of, of something else. There's this undercurrent of this um, ideology of, you know, materia prima, which is very Italian. Materia prima means keeping it simple, but getting the best ingredients. So there's people who are trying to do the best wine, the best cheese, the best seafood, the best meat, the best vegetables, the best of everything they can. And if you can harvest that and, and pull from that, all of a sudden you're having an experience that's unparalleled. You know, we are the envy, we're the darling of the United States in lots of terms of, of our space and our size and our water, our air, our food. And you can't take that for granted. You, you can't, you have to really help everyone to survive. And so it's really hard sometimes. Our systems are not really set up, whether it's managing people or managing food, it's our systems are kind of archaic in some respects. Um, it's not as, in Italy, I find there's a much closer connection between land, sea and people. Where here we're a little more removed because we've got agroecology or we've got factions that come in between for capitalism and money and without being political because I don't even go there. I just think that sometimes if we could remove some of the middlemen and just let it get a little closer, we have a longer and better shot at our future. That's what I'm concerned about is the future is sustainability. You know, we'll be able to keep fresh water, clean foods. Can we sustain people who don't, you know, who are food insecure? Can we get that to everybody? I'm always amazed when I go to Italy or France or other countries, how well I can eat for how little money. Um, when you talk about animal movements, like instead of fighting for foie gras, why aren't we fighting for all chicken to be better? So that everybody who eats chicken gonna get a really good chicken. Cause that's a bottom level. I mean, unless you're a vegetarian and then we should be fighting to protect our soil. So even the vegetarians can eat really well too. Um, because we're ruining things with, with our ignorance, we've been ruining things. And so now to step back and try and gain that footing again is really important for the future. I mean, I've got kids, I want them to be able to enjoy some of the liberties that I've enjoyed. I mean, imagine telling someone that there's no more sushi. I mean, there's no more sushi. Can you imagine that as a category? Oh, I'm sorry, there's no more vegetables. We've ruined the dirt and now there's no more vegetables. Oh, I'm sorry, we don't have cheese anymore. The cows don't exist, so no more cheese. I mean, we, we have to take a look at stuff. We have to look at our impact, our, you know, our carbon footprint and everything else we're doing um, and try to understand. I mean, fine dining especially gets slammed because we supposedly use something and throw it away. I'm old world. We don't throw anything away. I drive people crazy. We repurpose it. We don't let it go to waste. We will, I mean, I will find something new to make with it or we will eat it or I will give it to my crew to take home. It's not going to the landfill. Not, it's just not going to. But I'm, I'm not going to get in print for that. I'm, I don't care if anybody knows I'm doing that. That's the right thing to do. That's the ahead of time thing that you were talking about, right? So it might not be something that's trendy, you know, back in the time, but you're already ahead of the pack and thinking about these things in that context. Yeah. We're not trendy, but I do try to stay current. Mm -hmm. Current's important because when you have young people, if you're not current, they think you don't know. And it's not, a, it's not a case of not knowing, it's a case of deciding whether you agree or not. And that's even harder. So you have to research something to the nth degree before you can take a stand on anything. And I, I find it harder and harder to get to the bottom line, to get to the real truth. And it gets very convoluted and it gets really hard to understand what is the truth. Yeah, it's the world that we live in. It's a lot more faster, a lot more information, right, right. better, good out there. So, right. Well, and social media hasn't really helped in that respect. It's great. You know, this is um, in our kitchen. This is not a phone. This is a notebook. This is a calculator. Uh, this is um, often, you know, uh, a photographer. It's a camera, but we don't make calls. We just use it to the best of its ability. But you can't, once again, that old yin and yang, you can't deny the other side of what the phone does, right? So social media is there and live and well. So it's really important that 
we consider all factors and then we decide. Right, right. Now, uh, extending a little bit on the San Francisco side. So the city itself is famous for a lot of legendary female chefs like yourself, obviously, Alice Waters, uh, Joyce Goldstein, Nancy Oaks, etc., uh, etc. Et do you think the background, like we talked about, does that have anything to do with uh, this sort of development or is it just sort of a coincidence? It's definitely not a coincidence. I think the people that you named are all of a certain generation, though. There's a lot of other names you could throw out now. Kim Alter from Nightbird has been such a large voice of advocacy for our industry. You know, I think of Melissa Perello, who's done several restaurants and been very successful. I think of um, lots of other people who are a half of my age. The generation you spoke of, though, were the pioneers. Uh, what, what they found here in California specifically was an open mindedness. What they found was an opportunity and what they seized was a combination of those two. What they did was simply find the best they could, no pretense of who they were, offered up and there was a reward. People liked it and there was a following and it was built. So when you, as a woman, especially, I think when you see another woman who's successful, you think, oh, maybe I could do that. And so it's encouraging. It's encouraging. And I know no one wants to talk about male and female, but I'm sorry we are still here, some of us, male and female. And the idea is that any type of mentorship, any time of encouragement, any time from anybody anywhere helps you feel like you can achieve something. And that's the importance, no matter who it comes from. I had many male counterparts that were very encouraging. I had many that were thwarting, but I chose to take the advice and the learning from those who were encouraging. Um, and I wouldn't be here today without the male component that encouraged me because there wasn't a lot of females. One that's not even listed that same generation is Barbara Tropp. Barbara Tropp had a restaurant called China Moon and the youngsters won't know this, but if you Google her, she's there. She's passed away. Um, I first opened Ocarello. I cold called her. I didn't even know her. And I said, I'm failing. She said, come over right now. And so I went over. She said to her, Wait, get a glass of wine and some dumplings and sit down. She said, tell me what's going on. And I, for like an hour, I just word vomited all this crap. And another hour later, she said, uh, you, you know, it wasn't even an hour, it was like a half an hour later, she had finished saying what she had to say. And I left her thinking I could conquer the world. She made me feel like I had an ability and I was just floundering on something small, but I could go back and work it out. I could go back and figure it out. I could do what I wanted to do. I could follow my passion. And um, she saved me. She saved me that day. I don't know if anybody else has a story like that, but I certainly have a couple of those people I've turned to. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm at a wall. I'm at a crossroads. I'm, I'm stuck. Help. And that hand, that reaching out and saving you is something I like to think exists here in San Francisco, exists here in our community, exists as a chef. Um, I've got a lot of past employees and I stay in touch with a huge amount of them. And they'll call me and say, I'm at a brick wall or I don't know what to do or thank, you know, mainly <laughs> surprisingly, the phone calls are for thanking me, which I've gotten such great um, rewarding calls about chef I didn't understand now I do or oh my god you taught me so well I didn't realize you know and it's just that maturity it's where people are place and time in their own lives and you know as they go through more see more think more do more get married have kids whatever the case may be they start to realize what I was offering wasn't for me it was for them um and and so that's that's the most rewarding aspect but San Francisco I think is a hotbed of creativity innovation. There's a marketplace here for people who are willing to do something different. There is a receptance, you know, an acceptance of our audience. They'll go and try. 
where maybe somewhere else they're like, nah, that's not going to fly. But here there's an ability to try. There's an open-mindedness, I think, that's um, kind of that harbinger of our innovation on other levels, other industries as well. Um, and it's just like, oh, something new, something interesting. Oh, it's a new take on, it's a different version of, you know, and so it, it works. Um, and that's something I'm very proud of in California's history and its future, I believe. That's great. That's you know, touched on, obviously, the history and, and the mentality of San Franciscans, but also to your point, for me, I, I can certainly recall, you know, my like when I was, you know, shortly after I started working, I had, you know, like you said, exactly like you said, I run into a sort of a brick wall. And I remember calling uh, one of my very good teachers uh, back in when I was in high school, uh, Mrs. Donnelly, she passed away, unfortunately, but just, you know, talking to her and she doesn't really have to say too much. It's just someone to listen to and give you a little bit of encouragement. And that's really what supported me doing that you know, whatever dark, not really dark, but just challenging times. And I find that's very, very, that's very helpful. And I'm very grateful for her really for the rest of my life. It's really interesting to me that um, you share that because especially male to female, many times we forget that, that it isn't about the sexes. It's about who the person is, what they have to offer, um, how they can help us. And it doesn't matter who it is. It's just, that's a person you can turn to that, you know, you're safe, you're safe. You can say something that you may not reveal to your own parents, you may not reveal to your coworkers and you're safe. And, and that's really what I wanna create is that idea that I am the harbor in the storm. If you need me, I'm there. That's, that's very inspiring actually. Hopefully uh, well, I'll be able to do that one day. Well, because I mean, Carrie, isn't the measurement not what we do on a good day? The measurement is what we do on the bad days. Those are the obstacles, those are the hard ones, those are the challenges. And that's when you, you know, your substance gets tested. Yeah, absolutely. Just a few more questions, I guess. Thanks again for sharing your knowledge and your time with us. Uh, back to food a little bit. What are your favorite dishes at Aquarello Old or New? Obviously, you guys have uh, a lot of changes since you've opened. Well, it's funny. You know, you get known for a signature dish, and we have one that's on the menu. It's my foie gras pasta for the short name. You know, I probably wouldn't say it's necessarily my favorite dish, but it's a favorite because it was made a favorite by my clientele. And when you have something that's recognized over and over and over again, you have to recognize it too. And so when it's a requested dish, or it's really special and it hits a multitude of palates or a multitude of people over a long period of time, then you realize you've got something that's special. I mean, if, if you're really an honest chef, maybe you have 10 recipes in your hands. They said, okay, tomorrow you're cooking for God and Thomas Keller and maybe mother nature, what you gonna make? So you have this little cadre of things that you think are like your dynamite stuff, right? Um, and that's one of those. So, um, I don't know that I can eat much more of it cause I taste it all the time when we're making it. It's been around for 25 years and I'm like, oh, I can't. So the, the compliment I just said this last week to our sous chef, she made it and it was really good. And I said, this is probably the first time I've actually eaten a bite of this dish in a long time. This is really good. And you, I mean, everyone's like, oh, and we're like, write it on the calendar, write it on the calendar. Cause I never, I never like it. Right. <laughs> but we've had a change because foie gras is no longer accessible in California for sale. So we've had to morph things and change it to a fresh duck liver and do all these variations. And it's still, it still holds, holds weight. still good. Right. My favorite is very different. Okay. So I, are you um, aware of whole 30? Uh, can't say that I am exactly. Okay. Well, basically in a nutshell, whole 30 is a very popular elimination diet that people go on to discover if they have any ills, what they are. So that means that you do eat fresh meat, fish, poultry, vegetables, whatever you want. 
but nothing else. I mean, no preservatives, no soy, no sugar, no alcohol, no dairy, um, no grains, no legumes, anything that you can think of that's a food restricted item. So if you're gluten-free, if you're lactose intolerant, if you have sodium issues, if you are, um, you know, into the nightshades, whatever the case may be. So when you do 30 days of this non part, you reintroduce groups one by one by one to find out and assess what your issues are. My daughter was having a lot of issues. And so we were looking for the gluten-free or looking to see if it was dairy-free or looking to see what we would find. But in that process of 30 days, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about food. I reignited my love of vegetables. I'm very vegetable centric. I'm not a vegetarian per se, but I have a great respect for all vegetables. I love fruits. Um, and I've just reignited all the healthy aspects of my own attitude towards food. So it's been very, very helpful. So when you ask me what I like to eat, I eat very simple things. I love to find the best green beans or you know, apricot, Blenheim apricots are one of my passions, Royal Blenheims, you know, or I like to find something really at the peak of whatever it is with no ancillary or, or, you know, no extremities, no additions. Like when you get really good, we have a dairy that we buy Stracciatella from. Stracciatella is the inside of a um, burrata, which is a cheese preparation, like a mozzarella, but it's made like a sack and it's folded over around cream and pieces of cheese. So when you cut it open, it kind of oozes. We have this dairy, double A dairy that makes their own stracciatella that's to die for. I mean, I could sit and eat a bowl of it because it's just, it's the best it's ever gonna, it's, it's water buffalo or it's Jersey cow milk or whatever they, it, when you eat something like that, you're like, wow, mother nature really knew what the hell she was doing. This is really incredible. You know, and so um, I really admire, and it, it's the temple, right? Pristine, that's at the apex, pristine. How do you, keep something true to what it is. Do you, are you humble enough to add very little? Are you able to use restraint? That's a heart that I can train with people. Many times youngsters want 12, 15, 18 ingredients, pile of hot, no. You need to stop and realize that you're doing a disservice to this product. How do you show it? How do you make it the best it's gonna be? And honestly, that's parenting, that's raising your kids, that's allowing things to be who they are uh how they are what they are without as little you know direct dilution as possible but you you know you you get there if you eat something really delicious that your mom has made it doesn't matter that she does it all wrong it doesn't matter that she doesn't have culinary training you know there's love in that dish you know for a fact that she made that for you and there's love in that dish how do you encapsulate love in your food i really believe it exists people say that's trite that's ridiculous but no if you have someone who's really passionate about what they're making and they take a great deal of care, I believe it transfers. And that's really what I try. That's why I'm not a screamer and yeller in the kitchen because I think that thwarts that effort to put that love and passion. In fact, I only scream and yell when you're not doing that. When you become robotic or you're mechanical and you don't give a shit anymore, I'm right there behind you, not very happy. Right. So that's that best ingredients made it well and just so simply presented itself and let that it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. And at a price point with fine dining, if people don't see the value, they're going to complain. If they, if they miss the point or you haven't shown them the point, it's not going to fly. You know, this is a business that's not going to fly. Yeah, it's interesting. I talked to one of my friends who lives in France and he goes to a lot of high-end French restaurants. And that's actually kind of his beef or complaint about it is that a lot of the restaurants he feel is that uh, right or wrong, they sort of present the expensive ingredients without much technique or anything like that. 
I guess it's a two way of looking at it, right? But that's sort of the way he he felt that it's not necessarily, you know, if you're doing something, if you, let's say just putting it on a, on a desk or a table, it might not be what you're paying for. So there's an interesting way of looking at the same thing in a different way. Well, hopefully, you know, between what happens in the kitchen and what the waiter can explain to you and what you're experiencing in your mouth, there's a symbiotic relationship. For example, there's a caviar on our menu right now that's really interesting to me. And Seth created this dish and it's delicious royal etc. caviar sitting on avocado sheets. So they're sliced paper thin, they're layered beautifully. They have all these different color striations and they sit over this very little tepid mix of spinach and horseradish and creme fraiche. And it's just the right combination and it's not terribly warm. So that's down below the avocado sheet, which is lightly olive oiled and caviar. So when you cut into the caviar, the salinity and the pearls of caviar against the richness of the avocado down through the cream and the spinach and the horseradish, really interesting combination. So I think that's delicious. And that's showcasing the caviar without removing who it is or where it's from. And that's just, that's just coming up below it and supporting it. And maybe the guests will find that interesting that we serve it with a beef tendon chip. These chips are paper thin and fried so they're fluffy like a shrimp chip. And they're dressed with malted vinegar and dill. So that goes like a fish and chips kind of idea, which is a very soul satisfying dish. If you've ever had really good fish and chips, whether here or in the UK, you realize there's something elemental about it. And so when you're creating a dish, you're trying to find the essence or the elements of success in terms of how did that dish preserve who it was while showing it to you a new light. That's the challenge of yes. something that's simple, but great. That's the challenge. We have a salad on the menu too that Chef, we titled it um, Homage to Arpege. He went to France and he had this great salad and it was really just simple and delicious. What made it so great? Well, there was a beautiful array of different ingredients. We do at least 22 or more, more like 27 ingredients, but he made a cured lemon with Meyer lemons at the peak of the season, which we use into this lemon vinaigrette that we make. And we lightly toss all the greens. We put it in a crystal clear bowl. It's got beautiful flowers. Some of them are from my garden up on top. You can't get any fresher. You can't get any better greens. Is it common? No. Is it unusual things? Yes. Is it presented well? Yes. Can you eat your way through and find the textures and the layers? I hope so, because we have bigger leaves at the bottom, medium sized and floral at the top. Every time you're eating something, you should be hitting a different note. Annie's hyssop, spearmint, maybe some chervil, maybe tarragon, maybe chive, maybe, you know, the greens themselves. We use amaranth, we use all these unusual things, right? So it's really, if you're paying attention and eating your way through, it's really a journey. And how many times have you eaten a salad that's taken you on a journey? You know, so it's just, it's just a perspective. If you're busy talking and you think, oh, that was good, you may have missed everything we did, but if you're having a good time, great. In the meantime, we put a lot of thought and effort into that. But if, if you missed it, sometimes I feel like, should we have done a better salesmanship job? Should we have put more words on the menu? I mean, but ultimately, at the end of the day, if you had something good in your mouth, isn't that the end result? That's the best thing, right? If you liked it, that's it. That's the judge, right? That's the judge. Yeah. Yeah. And so what... I guess outside of your restaurant, where are some places that you go to eat yourself when you're out and about? I am really entranced with eth ethnicity. So that means I really want to go have the best Thai or Japanese. I tend to really go Asian. I love a lot of Chinese cuisine. I tend to go for sushi is my pretty much my ultimate favorite because it's so naked. It's so pristine, right? It's that pinnacle where if you get something really good and it's handled really deftly, many times the sushi chef might say, no soy, or this has truffle salt, or this has kinome you know, or this has a special pickled little turnip on it. Don't, you know, 
And so I want that journey. I want to be able to go, oh, that was Barracuda. Oh my God, that was, you know, that was like a, a sea bream. Oh my gosh, I could taste that that was a scallop and it's from a different part of the world, it's from Hokkaido. That's not the same as our scallops from, you know, the Mendocino area or from the East Coast, the diver scallops off of Maine. So it's very interesting to me to really identify. And I think it helps to grow my palate and my idea of cleanliness when it comes to food. Um, so that's probably one of my favorite things to do. Um, I like someone to show me something. I mean, I am very happy when I'm having a dumpling and the dumpling's got this filling and it's juicy and it bursts in your mouth. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can identify that's ginger, that's garlic, that's, you know, Chinese chives. I mean, what else was in there? Was that pork? I was interesting. It was really smooth. It was, I mean, I get into all of that. So I really find inspiration in the most unusual places. I especially find inspiration in things I don't like. I'm not a snob at all. I like to see and think and feel like everything. Sorry. So it's really important to me. Right. That's cool. That's even the curiosity and the, the thirst to know more alive. Yeah. Well, when I travel to Italy, my biggest fun thing is when I'm invited to somebody's home because I get a glimpse, not now of just food, but of history of, you know, a time and place of um, that family, the longevity, because many times in Italy, when I would go with my husband's family, they would, I'd be making notes and she'd say, get God so far, just put your notebook away, just watch. And I realized that this woman who was cooking had probably made this dish, you know, how many hundreds of times in her lifetime? She had a repertoire of maybe 20 things, but it was perfect. And I remember one time she was making, you know, porcini mushrooms in umido and she was cooking them and cooking them. I'm thinking, oh my God, she's ruining those mushrooms are cooking forever. We sat down to eat and I ate them and they were like silk. And I'm like, I am so stupid. I have no idea that this could even exist. So you get those eye-opening, if you're, if you're open to it, you get those eye-opening moments about whatever your preconceived notion was has now been rearranged. So I think that's really important to realize there are abilities to do things. I think you know, molecular gastronomy is a big terminology in our industry and it has to do with being able to make it equal to or better than. If it allows you to take food to an equal to or better than place, great. If it makes the food jump through hoops where it doesn't belong, I have more of an issue with that. I'm not on as I'm not as in board on board with those. Right. Yeah. It's always to me. It's ultimately it's the taste and really the entire package of the food itself, not so much the, right. the technology or the gimmicks for me personally. I admire knowledge, but I think that you have to draw a line at some point. Yeah. It's. Sometimes it's just too much, I find. Well, at the end of the day, if it doesn't taste good, aren't we back to square one? There you go. Right, exactly. Um, last question for you. Uh, is there any exciting projects you guys are working on? Any new things coming up in the future? Well, I think it's really exciting with this reopening of Ocarello. I think that our CDC set is super creative, has had found many new fun ways to portray Italian cuisine which, in a way that maybe Americans aren't as aware we do have a second restaurant that we're reconceptualizing that may um, come to be something, but it's a little premature for me to say. Uh, but for now, we're in the business of trying to reestablish who we are and to move forward, which is important after 32 years. Very nice. All right. So very, very great uh, speaking with you, uh, Chef Suzette, again, and sharing with your, again, not, your just, not just your food philosophy, your, your way of cooking, but also your life uh, knowledge really so uh, hopefully when things go back to normal here I can go back to, go to uh, San Francisco and visit you guys and uh, we'll be here yeah come on down see us for sure all right great great thank you very much thanks again Ciao. all right have a good day see ya bye bye, bye.